Hello. Um, I don't know some of you. My name's John. I'm the associate pastor here. Um, and I'm married to Sarah, who just uh, did the children's sermon. Um, and about 20 years ago, um, my wife Sarah took on a job uh, on staff at a large church in another state. Um, and she was working for the guy who ran the youth program in that church. And she liked him. He was energetic and mad about Jesus and passionate about sharing the gospel with teenagers. But as Sarah worked for him, she recognized two big problems with this church's youth program. Uh, one was that it included hardly any prayer, either in staff meetings or at youth group. And the other problem was that it didn't seem to have any plan for discipleship after the teenagers came to faith. It didn't apprentice them um, in how to live the Christian life. And Sarah thought that these two things were really big problems, um, and she thought that they should both change right away. And if you know Sarah, you know that she's not shy. Uh, she wasn't afraid to speak up. But the Lord convicted her that instead of saying anything, what she needed to do was to pray. So Sarah hit her knees about these two things. And not long at all after Sarah started praying, she walked into staff meeting one morning to find her boss on his knees in his office deep in earnest prayer. Um, and he was greatly moved by what he was praying about. And he told the team that day that he'd been convicted about how little they were praying for their ministry. And he made plans to change that right away. That they were going to make prayer the center of what they were doing. Um, and her boss even made a personal commitment to God that he would not invite a teenager to an event if he hadn't first prayed for that person. And that was a commitment that he kept from then on. So first of all, the prayer culture of the youth team completely changed. And around the same time, Sarah's boss came to her and asked if she would help him with discipleship. Um, he put her in charge of discipling the youth, which is exactly what she'd been longing to do. Um, and that year, they saw a flood of teenagers put their faith in Jesus. Uh, and Sarah's boss commented to her that the Lord had waited to send that flood until they were ready to disciple these young people in the way of Jesus. Mm. So Sarah had been right about what needed to happen with the youth program. And thanks to listening to the Lord, she went about changing it in the right way. The way that's powerful and effective. And so for you today, I expect that many of you here have some good ideas about what needs to change. Uh, what needs to change about our church, or in our city, or in our country. Uh, and I'm sure that if you had all the right buttons on the desk in front of you, you'd know exactly which ones to press to fix all the problems and make everything better. Um, and what I want to do today is to affirm you that you're probably right. You're probably right when you see what needs to change. Um, and so I also want to show you from the Bible how to change the world in the way that works. Mm. Uh, you do have power. You can bring about the change that you want to see, but there's a right way and a wrong way to go about it. So we're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Please turn there now in your Bibles. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, page 991 of the Church Bible. First Timothy 2, and we're looking at the first seven verses today. So I want to bring you three things that Paul says in these verses. He says first that our priority needs to be prayer. Second, prayer is more powerful than politics. And third, our goal is peace. 
So first, our priority needs to be prayer. I want to make this whole first point really out of just one word in this passage, the word first. So you see it right at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says first. Um, And you might have missed it in the English because our sentence here begins with the words first of all, which in English has become a cliche that means basically nothing. Um, It means I'm still thinking about what I want to say, so I'll throw in this cliche to clear my throat. throat) Um, Nobody who says first of all actually means that the thing they're about to say is the first of all things. But Paul did. Greek, proton, panto, is not a cliche. It's actually emphatic. And it means that Paul actually wants this point to be taken first of all, of first importance. And here's what he says. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He says, I urge. And that word urge connects this verse structurally with chapter 1, verse 3, if you want to glance back. Um, Because there, in chapter 1, Paul urged Timothy to safeguard Christian theology. In other words, to protect the gospel from distractions and heresies. And then Paul reminded Timothy what the gospel is. And now here, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is urging Timothy to safeguard Christian practice. And that includes a lot of things, but the first and most important one is prayer. And if we glance ahead to the second half of the chapter, we find that the kind of prayer that Paul has in mind is public prayer, prayer that's part of corporate worship. And so when I read these words, I conclude from what Paul says that our priority needs to be prayer. In our Christian lives, the first thing that we should practice, the first craft that we should master, and our most important work under heaven every day is to pray and especially to pray together. So listen again to verse 1 and see if you hear that too. Paul says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So our priority needs to be prayer. Now, that's very challenging, isn't it? Uh, Maybe that's not what we want to hear. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you here told me that you don't enjoy praying very much. Um, And I'd be even less surprised if you told me that you don't do it very much. Um, I suspect that that's very normal in the church today. Um, But if that's become normal, then I think Paul would challenge us very strongly and say that we are wrong. That's right. I'm convicted by these words myself. I myself find the work of prayer very difficult, perhaps the very most difficult part of my very difficult job. Um, I'm always tempted to skip it and tempted to abbreviate it. And I try to convince myself that it's not as important as it is. But Paul says, rubbish. (laughs) A day without prayer is a day wasted, and a week without corporate prayer is a week wasted. (laughs) I think Paul might go as far as to say that if we're giving money to the poor, and giving our time in service, and fighting for justice in the world, and we're not praying, then we'd be better off giving up all that other stuff until we can give proper attention to the work of prayer. Prayer needs to come first of all, our first attention and our best effort, because prayer is necessary. No good will come into this world except through prayer, and nothing will change without it. We believe that prayer alone can do any job in the world, but no job in the world worth doing will succeed without prayer. 
So why do we spend so much energy on everything else and so little on prayer? By prayer, you might heal your body, repair your marriage, get justice in the courts, pay off your college debt, find a new job, and find a wife for your son. And I say all those things from personal conviction because prayer alone has done all those things in the lives of people I know. In the past month, I saw a friend deteriorate significantly into mental illness, and we prayed for him, and the very next day, all the deterioration had vanished. We also watched Hurricane Dorian develop in the Atlantic and track toward Florida, a devastating storm. And Miriam, my daughter, sat at our dinner table and prayed that the hurricane would turn around and head back out to sea, which is exactly what it did. One of my neighbors said to me completely independently, you know why that storm turned around, don't you? It was because the people of Florida prayed. And I'm sure that he's right. If we want God's joy in our hearts and his work in our lives, then we must, must make prayer our priority. This is how we're going to change the world. So I want to think about some practical challenges that I would give you for your prayer life. And the first is, don't start a single day without prayer. So uh, Abraham Lincoln said that if he was given four hours to chop down a tree, he would spend the first two of them sharpening the axe. I think that's very wise. Um, and your morning prayers to God sharpen the axe for everything else you plan to do that day. Mm. If you start a day without prayer, you're going off into the forest with a blunt axe. And no amount of time or effort or energy can make up for that. So, maybe you can make it your rule that you won't eat breakfast until you've prayed. That you won't turn on your phone until you've prayed, and you won't leave the house until you've prayed. And if those things make you late for work, and your boss is mad at you, maybe that will get you out of bed earlier to pray. <laughs> <clears throat> what do we need to do to overcome our sluggishness and distraction and really make a priority for prayer? Second practical challenge. If you live with other Christians, pray with them every day. If they're your family, hopefully you share at least one meal with them every day. So have a daily ritual where you finish that meal together, then share prayer requests and pray for each other. Third challenge is to treat this house as a house of prayer. Paul's focus in 1 Timothy 2 is on corporate prayer, prayer that's part of public worship. So if prayer is the most important thing we do in our lives, and if corporate prayer is the most powerful form of prayer, then coming together to pray on a Sunday morning should be the top priority of our week, right? Mm. Maybe even as valuable to us as all the other hours in our week put together. So you don't need to be put together to come here. You can be a mess. You can cry. You can feel beaten down and defeated. You can be tired. You don't have to be in good shape. It's okay. Come anyway. Because you need this and because we need you. We need saints to come together and pray. So um, in the service leaflet, what we follow is called the liturgy. And liturgy literally means the work of the people. It was designed to be a service that the people did together. And so if you feel beaten down and all you can do is come and read the prayers that are written down in here and say amen, you've still participated in this important work. 
So when we come here on Sunday mornings, we don't come for our own entertainment or to be made to feel better about ourselves. We come here to worship and to pray. We are here this morning to hold the world together by our prayers. So as we read 2 Timothy and Paul's view of things, the prayers of the church gathered around the world this morning are what keep the world spinning for another week. This is the true center of global power. By today's prayers, regimes will rise and fall. Truth will stand, lies will topple, men and women will rise to eternal life. What we do here on Sunday mornings matters. So get yourself here because we need you and because the world needs you. So in our service, you'll notice that we spend a large portion of our time in prayer. Um, we start and finish our services with prayer, and in the middle, after the sermon, we open up time for what we call the prayers of the people, and we invite you as part of that time to pray aloud. And I just want to take this work so seriously. If you've never spoken aloud during this time of open prayer, then I want to encourage you that this isn't just a time for the super saints. It's not a time for priests and church leaders to pray. This is for everyone. This is the work of the people. These are the prayers of the people. And if you're a follower of Jesus from any part of the church, your prayers in his name are welcome here. They're important to us and valuable to us. I wonder if we could think of this building as a kind of antenna that beams our prayers straight up to heaven. Uh, when the community gathers in worship, our prayers get a special hearing. So please do join us in the work of bringing the world's needs to Almighty God. When we pray together, we pray as one united body of Christ. So it's important that we preserve that unity in the gospel while we pray. That means that we pray in accordance with the Bible and in accordance with the faith that we share. And if we know, as we're praying it, that our prayer might cause disagreement or disunity in the church, then we'll save that prayer for a more private setting. But if you have a prayer to bring that will build up the believers in the bond of peace, then please don't hesitate to speak it aloud when the time comes. All right, so first, Paul calls us to make a priority of prayer because, second in this chapter, prayer is more powerful than politics. So uh, if you look at verse 2, Paul urges the church to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Mm -hmm. So think about this. Christians who are often poor and low-ranking in society, are called to pray for their governments, who are usually made up of the wealthy and the great. And what Paul says here is that it's the prayers of those lowly Christians that really determine how the country fares. You see that? He says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It presupposes that God's going to answer those prayers and it's going to change the course of the country. So what I hear Paul saying here is that prayer is more powerful than politics. Because the prayers that we and the other churches offer this morning are going to do more for our country than all the meetings that will be held in Washington this week in terms of the way ordinary people live. That's an amazingly striking thing for Paul to say. But Paul would challenge us to greatly enlarge our view of prayer. The praying community holds real power. So if you want to see change in this country, then get on your knees. Paul adds in verse 3 that this is good and pleasing in the sight of God. So think about this picture. Um, Timothy's church is in Ephesus and the surrounding area praying 
for Emperor Nero for the sake of social peace and God up in heaven with a big smile on his face. So did God approve of Emperor Nero? Goodness no. <laughs> but nonetheless, God appointed him to govern, he gave him his title, he used his reign to create some amount of social order, and God commanded his people to honour and pray for Nero. So our prayers for our leaders do not depend on whether those leaders are righteous or whether we agree with them. This is hugely important for us to see in this age of political contempt. So think about Paul. In Paul's own lifetime, he had never known a good king or ruler. He had no good examples to point to. He'd obviously never known a Christian king, and he'd not even known a decent, God-fearing king. Actually, in Paul's life, he'd not even known a moderately decent human being sitting on the throne anywhere. Um, So Paul may have been born around the last days of Herod the Great, who was mad, paranoid, murdered his own family, and ordered the slaughter of an entire village full of infants. Then, Herod was succeeded by his son, Herod Antipas. Remember him? He beheaded John the Baptist for challenging him about stealing his brother's wife, and then he went on to condemn Jesus to death. And then he was succeeded by Herod Agrippa, who accepted praise as a god and was immediately eaten by worms. And through most of his life, Paul had lived under Emperor Nero, who had his own wife murdered, then blamed Christians for a fire in Rome that he probably started himself, and then ruthlessly hunted Christians so he could burn them alive. Okay? So all of Paul's personal experience of kings and rulers was of men who were brutal, conniving, insecure, egotistical, self-serving, murderous nutcases. Like, certifiably insane. And if Paul can instruct Christians to pray for these rulers, then surely our own leaders are not disqualified from this command. The church owes its government honour and prayer, regardless of who they are, how they got there, how they govern, and what they do to Christians. It doesn't matter. Because we do it for God's sake and not for theirs. Because it pleases God. Because any government is better than no government, and any kind of order is a gift from heaven. And all governments will answer to God for how they use their power, and all governments will eventually be toppled to make way for the king of kings. Mm-hmm. So listen to this. If we practice, we practice loyalty to Jesus our king, in part through our loyalty to human rulers... Okay, this is really important. If we can learn to submit to and honour them who are evil, how much easier will it be to submit to and honour Jesus? But if we're basically rebellious and ungovernable, then we will be rebellious to Jesus too. And such a person will not be welcome in his kingdom. This is very important to us, friends. Um, Soon after Barack Obama was elected president, you started to see bumper stickers that said, Not my president. And you saw them again after Donald Trump was elected. But much as we might be tempted to make a statement like that, it is never a godly thing to say. It is a statement that no one in any nation has a right to make. It actually defies God and shakes a fist at him. We may not scorn and defy the government he has appointed, however much that government offend God's own laws. They will answer to him for that. 
but we will answer to God for whether we play our part faithfully too. Now I will say that it's not wrong to pray for the toppling of an evil regime or to pray for a better ruler, and God has answered those prayers many times. Mm. But until he does, our Christian responsibility is to fear God, honour the king, and pray for all those in authority so that there may be peace. In this time of fierce political hatred and disrespect, may the Church of Jesus show the way back through our honour and our prayers. All kings are temporary, except for the king we really want, and none of them will ever live up to his standard. So let me just show you this. Uh, grab your service leaflet right here, um, and turn to page six. Um, so on about the, the, the fourth prayer down, you'll see that we pray for Donald, our president, and then Rick, our governor, and in lots of those, Rick's been crossed out, okay? <laughs> Um, so we used these service leaflets last year when Rick was our governor um, and we didn't want to have to reprint 150 leaflets and waste all the old ones. So to be a bit kinder to the planet, we just crossed out Rick's name and we wrote Ron instead. Um, so I looked at these and what really struck me is that if this, these leaflets persisted for long enough, if we kept using them year after year, every name in these prayers would be crossed out, right? Every name except one. <coughs> In time, we'd cross out Donald, and we'd cross out Neil, and we'd cross out Taylor, and we'd cross out John. But in no amount of time would we ever cross out Jesus. Hallelujah. The rest of us are all temporary. We're all just filling in a role for a short time, and all of us serve in Jesus' name under his authority, which is the only true authority in the world. So it's by God's grace that we have received our roles. We are given by God as a gift to you for your good for a short time. So we deserve the respect that our roles entail, not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus who appointed us. And all the people named on this prayer page need your prayers. We ask for your grace when we blow it, which we are certain to do. Um, and all of us will stand before Jesus and answer to him for how we have filled the roles that he gave us. So please, please pray for us. All right, so we've seen first that our priority is prayer, and second, that prayer is more powerful than politics. Now third, I want to say that our goal is peace. Uh, what we pray for is peace. So first, there's political peace. That means peace between people, which is in verse 2. And then second, there's spiritual peace. That's peace between people and God, which is in verses 4 and 5. So as Paul describes it here, the two kinds of peace serve and reinforce each other. So if the church is doing its job properly, then there will be political peace. And if the state is doing its job properly, then it can help build spiritual peace. Let me show you where I see that. Uh, Paul says the first job of the church is to pray for all people and especially for kings. And the result, he says in verse 2, is that ordinary people can lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So the church, then, is instrumental in political peace. <clears throat> then Paul goes on to say that this climate of political peace is friendly to the spread of the gospel. So verse 3, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Mm -hmm. And then he says that the truth is that there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, 
the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So what I hear Paul saying is that if the state is doing its job properly and creating a just and orderly society, Paul says that there can be spiritual peace too that comes out of that. So a well-ordered country is a highway for the gospel and the gospel belongs to everyone. Now Paul knew from personal experience that the Roman Empire really helped his missionary work, unintentionally, but it did. So Rome helped Paul by creating the Pax Romana, which was the peace that Rome enforced between nationalities, and that made it easy for Paul to travel internationally. It helped him by building good roads that made it safe for him to travel over long distances, and it helped him by enforcing a common language so that Paul didn't have to learn hundreds of different languages in order to share the gospel. So Rome hated Paul and his message, but in many ways, it was good to Paul. Um, So I think in what Paul says here, we can see a healthy cooperation between church and state. Because every state wants peace, and that's something only a praying church can provide. And every church wants to spread the message of Jesus, which is something that a peaceful political climate greatly helps. Now we can go wrong if we take this relationship too far and make it too close. If we start to think that the government determines whether or not the mission of the church can flourish within its borders, it's rubbish. It's Jesus who decides that. We could also go wrong in the other direction. If we think the church can operate within a country and have no concern for the leadership of that country, we have a social responsibility First of all, to pray, and not just for our own country, but for all the other countries too. So it's good for us to pray for the political peace of India, for example, for its stability and its prosperity as a nation, to the end that the good news might spread there. Paul says, there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So we believe that Jesus belongs to the people of India just as much as he belongs to the people of America. He is their mediator too, their saviour too, their only hope. So the scope of our prayers then should match the scope of our gospel. That's right, come on. One of the big challenges for us in this passage is the sheer size of Paul's vision. Look at how many times he uses the word all. He says, verse 1, pray for all people. Verse 2, for all in high positions. Verse 4, God desires all people to be saved. And verse 6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And surely those alls are connected to one another because it's precisely because Jesus came for all nations that we pray for all nations. Mm. The scope of our prayers should not be smaller than the scope of our gospel. But the scope of the gospel is huge. <laughs> so that leaves us with a big challenge for our prayers. There is so much work to do. So yes, we need all of your help. So in conclusion, do you want to change the world? You can, and that's the reason that you're here. And here Paul gives us the way for people to do that. It's maybe not the way we would first think of, but Paul's way works. And I've seen in my own lifetime that it works. Our goal is peace, and we possess a power greater than politics, so we make a priority of prayer. Amen. Amen. Amen.